and it puts us right up to the triumphal entry, which we'll get into next week on Palm Sunday. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit here and talk about um, a, a snapshot, a parable that Jesus tells that really encapsulates his mission and why he's come and what the, what the problem with the human race is. He's trying to get across the enormity of the problem that he's come to solve. So we're going to talk about that and dissect that a little bit together today, and it'll be super fun. But first, um, let's read it, and then I'm going to pray. This is uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, Jesus said, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then... He rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And at harvest time, he sent a servant, a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Well, then he sent another servant to them and they struck him. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Well, he sent another, and that one they killed. They killed the guy. And he sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. Well, he, this is verse 6. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. And he sent him, last of all, saying, they, they will respect my son. But the tenants said, said to one another, this is the heir. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then, what, or excuse me, what then will the owner do, uh, the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, the chief priests... And the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he was speaking about them in the parable. And he was speaking against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went their way. That's what we're going to look into this morning. Jesus, would you please guide us through this? Um, Lord, reveal this to us. There's so many times you've given parables and we read that your disciples come up to you afterwards and say, what did that even mean? And you told them. Lord, that's what we're doing this morning. We're asking you, what does this mean? And we're trusting you to tell us and guide us through this parable. I pray that you would do it for your glory so that we can see you more clearly and glorify you and worship you and be drawn to you and keep repenting and be convicted and um, just be closer with you. I pray that we, were, we would be closer with you um, now than when we walked in. Draw us in. Touch every heart here as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in the first section of Mark, the first half of the book of Mark. You can just feel the question on everyone's mind. Who is he? Who is this man? And we've been exploring this for a, a, a number of months. And the first section ends with someone finally saying it. Peter comes and he says, um, when Jesus said, who do, who do people say that I am? Peter says what it's on everyone's mind. You're the Messiah. You're the one. 
And over the years, I just want to let you know, that statement, Peter's realization, Peter's um, light bulb moment has been being repeated for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people throughout all of history to this very morning. Um, You are here, I hope, if you're a Christian, you are here because at some point you it dawned on you, okay, this is not just a great moral teacher. This isn't just the leader of one of the biggest religions, the biggest religion in the world. This isn't just this or that. He's not just a prophet or whatever. It dawned on you, this must be the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is who he said he was going to be. Is there a ring in, in, in this? Bob, do you hear that? Um, let's see, let's turn that off. Um, and so... If you're here this morning, I guess what I want to say is if you're here this morning and you've had the same realization that Peter is, you're, you're part of, a, um, of all walks of life that have come to the realization and have dared to let it utter from their heart, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And I know the reason I want to say that to you is because you live in Seattle. And it gets really lonely here being a Christian. Chances are that if you live in Seattle, you feel stupid you feel that you're uh, in the dark ages, you feel looked down upon, um, you know, all of those things. I, someone the other day asked me what I do. Uh, they, what do you do? We're getting to know each other. What do you do? And um, in my mind, I always say to myself, in my brain, here we go, I'm about to lose a, I'm about to lose a potential friend. <clears throat> I pastor a church, and usually what happens is, oh, wow, good for you. Um, so I gotta go, and they, they make their way out, or they, exit the, they exit the conversation. I'm used to that. This particular person actually was interested and wanted to keep talking about it, which was, what are you doing on Sunday? So what are you and your family got plans to do on Sunday? There's a part of you that goes, I wanted to be friends. I'm a, here it is, you know. I want to let you know, and right here, you're not alone. This ancient text tells us that Peter and millions and millions and millions of people after him, um, and Easter will feel this. On Easter, you know, the whole world, the millions of Christians worldwide will be coming to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they believe that God actually in, on our, in, in our history, on this planet, at our time, in this space, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You're not alone. You're not alone. Um, but this next section of the gospel of Mark tracks Jesus' journey from that moment, from that proclamation to Jerusalem, to the cross. And along the way, it raises over and over again, and this is what I'm going to put to you this morning in, a, in, a, in the way of this passage. <clears throat> it raises the next logical question. If Jesus is the Son of God, if we've gotten past that point, if you're like Peter and you've come to that conclusion yourself, if Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean for your life now? That, Mark's going to raise this over and over again. Okay, now that we're past that point... We're journeying to the cross, and along the way, Jesus is going to put it to his disciples, his followers. Here's what this means for you. See, you can't, here's what we don't understand in the West primarily, and that is you can't just say 
You can't, just stay the, you can't just stay the way you were once you've come to that realization. The idea of saying you're a Christian um, without it having any, having any effect on your life is a foreign and alien idea to the Bible. Here <clears throat> in the West, we have this idea that we can claim Christian, but it really has very little bearing to do on, our, on the, way, the way we live. That is a very, very, you won't, you won't find that kind of division in the Bible. In fact, and um, historically, if you want to start tracking where that idea started coming in, it's, it's the Enlightenment. It's not the Scripture. Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment theology began to make a, a division between your relationship with God, your religion, and how you live your life. It's fine if you want to believe the Enlightenment folks would say, if you want to believe, just keep it out of the public square. Don't let it affect society. Just keep it to yourself. And the, uh, post-enlightenment theologians started getting onto this. And they started to propagate it throughout Western society to where now it's just the air we breathe. We don't even really know we're thinking that way, but we do. We do think that way. I think that way. When I am by myself and I'm tempted to do something or not do something, usually what, dis, what the deciding factor is, is it like Joseph, which maybe you felt, maybe you're reminded of Joseph in this, in this parable. It's probably on purpose. And Joseph said, remember when he was facing Potiphar's wife and Potiphar's wife said, lie with me, no one will know, right? He said, but God will know. See, in Joseph's mind, there was no, uh, what he believed had absolute continuity with how he lived his life, even in private. So it's the source of ethics, it's the source of morals, it's the source of how you are married and how you live your life, it's the source of your integrity, who you are when no one's looking. All of those things come to this idea that can we separate what we believe from how we live? The Bible would loudly say no, no. And Jesus is gonna start <clears throat> unpacking that as we keep going here. Um, Christianity, the reality is, Christianity demands a life change and that your life, and to the degree that you begin realizing and unpacking the implications of Christianity, your life will begin to change. It's not static, it's dynamic. You are in process of your life changing to the degree that you continue coming into contact with Jesus and understanding what he's talking about, understanding what Christianity is. And that's, so Jesus is gonna take us through a series of lessons here. Um, so the second section is all about what it means to follow Jesus to the cross. Not just to follow Jesus, period, but to the cross. What does it mean for your life to be a follower of Jesus? We call someone who, uh, who follows Jesus a disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple. How are you supposed to live in light of this? See, on the one hand, it's not enough just to grasp something intellectually about Jesus. That's just not enough. A Christian is not someone who simply understands the Bible or memorizes it or, or even has some kind of gra doctrinal grasp of what Christianity teaches. On the other hand, a Christian is not someone who just follows rules. That's the volitional side of things, right? A Christian is not someone who's just passionate and emotional. It's a full-bodied, a full-person type of a thing. We want all of ourselves to be firing based on an experience with Jesus Christ. That's what we're going for. That's what you're going for in your life. That's what we're pushing, that's what we're pawning off on you is what Christianity is here from the scriptures. And um, 
And that's what we believe as a church. Now this passage is saying some very controversial and surprising things about human beings. I'm gonna warn you up front, disclaimer, um, this, is, this passage is, you're, we are gonna find ourselves at an impasse with the culture when we unpack the implications of what Jesus saying, is saying here about humanity. This passage is saying that there is something in the collective conscience of the human race that um, you and I would much rather repress and not look at. It is more sinister than what people can see or what we're willing to admit. Um, and I will, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna try to pawn off on you that, that that lens is the only lens that we can look at to where this scripture is gonna make any sense at all. <laughs> this parable will not make sense unless we understand what he's saying about humanity. The Bible says that underneath um, all of our self-deprecation or underneath all of our anger, um, all of our unwanted behavior, underneath everything else, the thing that is really repressed, the thing that is really determining our behavior, um, the thing that we'd rather not look at and we'd rather not admit is that, is, and, and therefore is determining our behavior the more we repress it, is that there is a contempt, an animosity, even a hatred for God himself in the human heart of the problem that he's really here to solve. Now, of course, if this is true, <clears throat> this is something we'd rather not look at. This is something we'd rather not deal with. I, um, Noble and I went on a, uh, like a father-son outing, and I took him to the coffee shop that I normally go to because I've, start, I've gotten to know all the employees there, and I wanted them to meet my son. And we sat at the table, and on the side, uh, there's this bulletin bar board in Starbucks that shows a child with a shaved head and a um, breathing tube, and it's, it's talking about Jude's Hospital and how Starbucks donates to Jude's Hospital. And of course, Noble saw this sick child, and he was just very deeply troubled by this. And he asked me about it. I told him what it was and all of that, and we need to pray for those children. The other, yesterday, we were driving by the same place, and I said, do you want to go get a cake pop or something? Do you want to get a treat? And he said, I don't want to go back to that Starbucks, Dad. Or if we do, we need to sit at another table because I don't want to think about that child. I, can't, I, I don't want to look at, and I thought, man, that is so true. You know, we, we, those are images that we'd rather not know. Uh, we're all right now involved in the Russia-Ukrainian conflict, what you don't know, or what maybe you don't think about, is the famine going on in Yemen. That's been, it's been a humanitarian crisis for years now. Um, they've been pleading for the world to get behind this and put as much effort that we're getting into with Ukraine over into Yemen, and the world comes up short. All these Western affluent countries are not doing this. If you look at some of the pictures of the children that are starving to death in Yemen, it is a, it's a reaction within your gut. You will want to turn away from that. You will want to say, oh gosh. Because what do you feel? You feel overwhelmed, right? What, all of those types of things. There is a certain level of evil and, and hunger and hurt in the world that we, we just would rather not deal with. And I'm making up that this parable is about that going on in our hearts and every day we have ways to cope and turn away or to minimize what's actually happening in our hearts. Jesus is gonna tell us straight up 
The reality is you do these things, if you keep digging and you keep digging underneath, if you keep figuring out why you're doing the things you're doing or why you feel the way you feel or what's going wrong with you, if you keep digging, at some point your shovel's gonna hit bedrock and it's gonna be a hatred and animosity for God himself. And you'd rather fill in the hole again. Plant some daisies and some roses and some tulips and make that look nice, right? So um, if this is true, we'd rather not deal with it. It's easy to turn away from something like this. But the Bible nonetheless claims that the nature of the human heart is not, that just, not just that we're indifferent to God, not even that we just don't like God, but that it's intrinsic to every human heart that there's a contempt, and I'll use a biblical word, an enmity between us and God. There's an anger and a hatred for God, and Jesus is gonna get right to the root of it. He's gonna unpack it this morning. Um, And the Bible says that it's very difficult for us to admit it. That's the only way to understand the behavior of the tenants in this this parable. It's the only way to get it. Otherwise, if you, the, the analogy will continue to break down unless you look at it through this lens. It's the only logical uh, moral of this parable. And this is what the Bible says throughout. Let me show you. This is uh, Romans 8, uh, verse 4. This is just, I just picked up a handful or just a couple. The natural mind is, here's the word, enmity towards God. That's naturally for the human being. The natural mind um, and it's not just talking about mind the way we know it. This is a, a um, uh, somatic range for this word, but it, it, it's used interchangeably to mean the whole person. It will not submit to the law of God. Look what he says. Indeed, it cannot. Uh, Romans 1.18, we hold down or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We have a tendency, a proclivity to suppress the truth, it's built in from the fall. So what's the Bible saying? The Bible is saying what psychologists know, that real hatred hides itself so that it can work, it, it can work out without obstruction. We make excuses. The Bible says that there is a contempt and an anger toward God that we won't admit and it, it's affecting every part of our lives. That's actually what this parable is about. Jesus is trying to show people, like I said, how deep and how permeate, permeated the problem has gotten. The fall of mankind. How deeply it's permeated into the human uh, being. And by removing um, the sacrificial animals, he's saying there's no way an animal can solve your problem here. We're heading toward Passover. There's no way a lamb is going to solve this problem. Because that's what the nation of Israel is thinking at this point. They're thinking this is what we do every year to take care of the problem. And Jesus is saying, oh boy, have you, you don't understand the enormity of the problem. Or they'll think it's a political thing. If we can just get Rome out of here. And Jesus says, oh, maybe Jesus says, oy vey, you're not really understanding the depth, the depths of the, of the human problem. So, The fact of your hatred toward God is seen in how incredibly angry and offended you get when people try to um, raise the case. That's what the parable is about. Notice, did you notice that even, even as Jesus is talking to a group of people about this and basically saying, you're angry at God, what do they try to do at the end of the parable? They try to kill Jesus. (laughs) And as he's telling them the story, they want to kill him. That very reaction illustrates the point that he's trying to get at. 
He's like, thank you for proving my point. How do you react to the parable? Well, um, let's outline today's message by looking at the structure of this parable, and you can help me out a little bit with it. Um, There are three movements. Let me set it up for you, and then we can do it together. There are three movements to the narrative structure of this parable. Um, In other words, you will find, you will notice that this parable highlights three relationships. There are three relationships happening in this parable. First of all, notice how the tenants interact to the owner. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. What is the tenant's relationship to the owner? Let's pick the parable apart. What, what, is, what kind of relationship do the tenants have to the owner? Workers to a boss. Workers to a boss, that's right. Um, that's their purpose. That's their job. The tenants work vineyard. That's their function. A man bought, buys a vineyard. He puts his own money into it, his own capital into the vineyard, Um, He leaves, so he hires a team of tenant farmers to take care and to cultivate it for him while while he's gone. Um, So what is the relationship? It's pretty self-evident. It's it's the owner's investment, right? Let's Let's just talk capital here. It's the owner's investment. It's the owner's risk. It's the owner's money. And therefore, the tenants get paid, but they have to they have to leave the profit to the owner. That's how it works. Rented? Yes, yeah, it's, it's renting, but the idea is they're renting for, a, they get to stay there, they get to live there, but they also get a profit. They don't own it. So they, what's that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep, that's the implied indication. You can stay here and you get some, I will pay you to, t- to, to because in a vineyard um, back then, you couldn't, you had to live there. You had to be there. It wasn't like come and watch my cat while I'm gone. You know what I mean? Um, it, it was, you have to live there and you have to tend it full time. There's no way around that. So yeah, part of it is to, is to live there, to shelter them, but they also get paid but the prop, but the risk, the risk is incurred. The capital goes in by the owner himself. I mean, this is, this is outdated. This is before a formal idea of capitalism. But it's the same idea, right? Um, they have to tend the vineyard for the owner, and they have to tend it in a way in the way that he wants, right? He he gets to. Yeah, Kristen. Oh, I think it was Romans 1.18. Yep. Yeah, no worries. So they, can, so they can't tend, the point is, they can't tend the vineyard any way they want, right? It's like we're renting a house in Wallingford. We can't do with that house whatever we want. I have to tell Noble that all the time. You can't put Gorilla Tape on the walls here because it'll rip off the plaster and we'll get kicked out. You know, the, we can't treat this place however we want because it's not, it's not ours. Um, they can't treat the garden any old way they want. They have to do it. They have to find out what the owner's policies are, right? But they also need to tend it for his profit, which means that they get their pay, of course, but he gets the profits. 
In other words, by his word, by his word they have to tend it and for his profit. Now, the, the first people that this parable is directed towards are the religious leaders of Israel. This is how this applies to who Jesus is talking about here. He's in Jerusalem and he's talking to the religious leaders and it was very common, it is very common that the Old Testament, like in places like Hosea, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Psalm 80, um, prophets call Israel God's vineyard a lot. That's a, that's a big theme in the Old Testament. God had given Israel many incredible things. Um, their homeland, his word, his commands, uh, that's an exodus, uh, the temple, so his very presence. This was their vineyard, so to speak. That was, um, they were given these things, and the religious leaders were seen as the tenants. They're the ones that kept it going. It was their job as the leaders of Israel to govern to their own tradition. And it was for God's profit. It was for God's profit, not for their own not for their own power or aggrandizement. And this hyperlinks back to when, when God created mankind. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, one of the things that God, that, um, that God says when he makes mankind is let, let them have dominion over the earth to steward it, to subdue it, to bring it in for my glory, for my Sabbath rest. That is our telos, that is our purpose. We are here to govern on behalf of Yahweh and for his glory and for him, not for us and our profit or our aggrandizement. So we're going back to, he's using a parable to talk about the very basic building blocks in the very beginning of what it means to be human. Therefore, the first people that this parable is aimed at is the religious leaders of Israel, but the broader point is absolutely critical for us to see about ourselves. The broader point is that you and I need to look at our, what, is your, what, are, what do our lives consist of? What are some things that you and I have? What have you been given? A place to live. Place to live, yep. Food. Food. So we have, a, we have a biological life, right? What about? Talents. Talents, yes. You've been, every one of you in here has got a level of talent, a level of expertise, a level of skill, um, a level of personality bents, interests, those types of things, right? Anything else? There's people sitting around you. You have friends. You have family. Did I say it for you? I saw you someone go, yes. Right? We have friends. We have family. What else in that? Cars. Cars. Yeah, we have cars. Yeah, we've got stuff. Yeah, we've got things to help us get places. Cars that help us do what? Meet with other people, uh, go to work, those types of things. We have people that we meet at work. We also have been given this city. We have neighbors on our right, on our left, in front, and in behind. We have needs, all, all of those things. You've got gifts, you've got talents, you've got creativity. Um, you've got a certain amount of power. Uh, we have a certain amount of privilege of some kind. We've got, we've got a certain amount of material resources that we have, Right? So here's the, I mean, we're just getting really basic. You must recognize that you are a tenant farmer. You're not the owner. Jesus is saying this first things first here. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. You are the tenant farmers. You're not the owner. You mustn't look at life and what you have in life. 
your possessions, your talents, your intelligence, life itself, your children, all of those things. You must not look at life as if you're the owner of life. That is the problem of how things went wrong. Do you remember what happened with, Ad, with, with Adam and Eve in the garden, chapter three? You remember? Um, at some point, we'll have, we're gonna have technology where I can just show you. I'll be able to just go, boom, and it'll be right there. But for now, I'll just paraphrase. Um, in Genesis chapter three, this previously fallen spiritual creature uh, in the form of a snake, right? Um, uh, Nahash is the Hebrew. It's a, even a crazy name in Hebrew. Snake is Nahash. Sounds diabolical, doesn't it? Comes up to Eve and says, um, did God really say, remember? And, God, and she says, yeah, we can't eat it. We, we can't, of all the trees we can have, but we can't eat or touch that tree. It's in the midst of the garden. Um, and it, when we do, we're gonna die. And remember what Nahash says. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that that, that fruit, the, a, a deception in her mind, God is deceiving you. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really have what's best for you. And it says, when she sees, when she saw that the fruit was, was good and was used to make one wise, she made the decision that that was good even though God said it was bad. Do you see what happened there? What was the temptation of Satan, really, philosophically speaking? It was Eve, he didn't say, he didn't say don't trust God and trust me. In reality, the devil was saying, don't trust God. You don't have to trust me. Trust yourself. You get to be the one that decides what is good, right, true, and beautiful in this world, not God. In Eve's mind, she became the owner. She got to make it, she, she went above her pay grade and got to make an executive decision. She decided, I'm going to make an executive decision. This is going to be good. In the Hebrew, by the way, um, ra and tov, good and bad, in that original context, doesn't necessarily mean morally good or morally bad. It, it, in the context of that scripture, it became morally bad when she made that decision. But in the context of that scripture, originally, it is like functionally good for you and functionally bad for you. In other words, just like what you would tell a kid, don't put your key in a light socket, that would be bad. What you're not saying to that kid is, you're, gonna, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Not morally bad, you're saying that if you do that, that would be bad. Now when the kid says, I don't care what you think, mom or dad, I'm going to do it anyway, then it becomes morally bad at that point, see. And that's what we're seeing in the garden, he said, hey, you eat of that, you're going to die. And she makes this decision. I will decide. I'm going to call that good. And boy, you can boil that down behind every sin that we ever commit. That's, that, that is an absolute ingredient in everything, every sin that we ever commit is this sense of independence. I'm the owner. I'm no longer the tenant. I will make the decision here. Even right down to, if you want to get I mean, into something uh, culturally relevant, I will decide what gender I am. I will decide who I'm attracted to. 
It's my body. I will decide this. I will decide that. See, behind all of that, we can get into the, the surface things of it all. What does it mean to be male and female and all that? But you have to understand, the Bible would point to something even deeper, and that is, <clears throat> I will decide. I make the decisions myself. And boy, you find that right back in Genesis chapter 3, in the very beginning. This is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, number one, if you're going to follow me, and he marches into Jerusalem, this is after the triumphal entry, and he goes in and he says to everybody, hey, the owner is here, submit to me. If you want to follow me, you need to take the, the position of a tenant farmer. Stop thinking that you're the owner. You're thinking too big of yourself. It's really about me. The universe is about me, Colossians chapter 1. It was made by me, and it was made for me. First things first, humble yourself, right? And the point of this parable, the tenants begin to act like owners. That's the, whole, that's the root of it. They won't listen to the messengers. They won't tend the, the vineyard as the owner wishes. <clears throat> they won't give the owner his due profit, right? His due glory, his profits. Now, we know that the religious leaders were, were failing to listen to God's word, and they were, doing, they were doing it for their own wealth and glory. There was so much corruption there. Um, but we need for a moment to think about how this impacts us as Christ's followers. The Bible tells us that it's the nature of the human heart to think of itself as the owner of what, of what we have as opposed to the tenants. That's, what we, we're, that's the default position. Because of sin and the fall of mankind, we have this proclivity. We're all acting like owners. This is what Jesus would say. This is the problem with the world. You're all acting like owners and you're not. For example, look at your life. You have a mind. You have a brain. Now listen, this is a frightful thing to talk about, especially in a place like Seattle. But here's what, the, here's what Jesus is saying. You can't, just do with your, you can't just do with your mind whatever you want. This is why people don't like, this is why we balk at the Bible. You can't just believe whatever you want. You've got a relationship and a sexual desire. You can't just use that however you want. That's going to be, especially this culture, You've got a certain amount of power. You've got a certain amount of positions. You've got a certain amount of money. Your money is not yours. You're a tenant of it. You can't just use it however you want. You can't just use any of those things the way you want. I know that all the wisdom in this world is dumping on us and telling us all the time through TV and songs and everything else, nobody can decide for you. You, you your own person, no one can tell you what you can, what you can and cannot do. Man, the one thing that'll really fire people up. Tell them what they can or cannot do with their body or with their money. Those are hot button issues. And that is exactly opposite of what Jesus is telling us here. It's exactly opposite of what the Bible says throughout. What these books are telling you, that, what these books and what our culture is telling you is that you are the owner. Have it your way, McDonald's would say. <laughs> right? You are the owner. And the Bible is saying, and Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he says, no, you're a tenant. Let's get that straight first. You're a tenant. 
There are all sorts of ways that you can act like an owner instead of a tenant. One is <clears throat> that you can just say, I'm going to decide how to use my mind. I'm going to decide how to use my sexuality. I'm going to decide how to use my money. When the Bible says you've got to tend the, the, the vineyard by his word, right, and for his profit. That's what you're here to do. You're here to tend your vineyard, all the things you guys mentioned, to tend your vineyard by his word and for his glory. It's about him. It's not about you. Some of you here are incredibly smart. You're natively smart. It means you don't need books. It means you were born that way. You're like, what? You're natively smart. And on top of that, some of you have laid on top of that incredible amounts of, of education. Do you look down your nose at people that aren't as smart as you? That's an indication that you're thinking you're an owner, not a tenant. It's just been given to you. We went to, uh, Nicole and I went to a John Mayer concert a few weeks ago. It was amazing, by the way. Talk about God has dumped talent into one person. I, I mean, John Mayer is an amazing musician, and we heard him say, I did this for me. I've done this for me. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar up on the wall. Look what I've built. Did he fall right. No, he didn't. No, he actually, he actually uh, turned the distortion on and just went into this incredible solo that blew my mind. <clears throat> but how gracious of God to let him do that. We all live in the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency, whereas our real condition is dependency and contingency and we don't, want to, we don't want to look at that. We don't want to see that. We don't want to believe that. And the Bible says that's our nature. So maybe now you're beginning to see what kind of primal conflict is that we're repressing inside of us. On the one hand, we know we're tenants. We know it. But on the other hand, we hate that. So we're mad at God. We try to get him out of society. On the one hand, we know that we're not the owner. We've got to know that. We're in such little control of so much. We've got to know that, right? But on the other hand, we don't want to know that. We want to, we want to do it ourselves. We want to create this world for ourselves that says, look, what I've done, we want credit for it. So here's where the conflict comes. Two very deep motiv motivational constructs are in our heart. On the one hand, there's a part of us that knows we're tenants, and on the other side, there's a part of us that knows we, that we desperately want to repress the, that idea, and we want to believe that we're the owner. The only way to do that is to get rid of the owner, which is about what's going to happen to Jesus at the end of, at the end of this week, biblically speaking. Good Friday for us, that's what we're going to be contemplating at Tenebrae, that mankind got rid of the owner, tried to, so we could be in charge. It's nothing less than a coup. Um, so, but how do we even know that there is an owner? How do we know there is an owner? How do we know there is a God? How do you know that there's an owner at all, right? And for example, what about the great, some of the great philosophers and speakers of our time, of our culture? And when we die, the reality is we just rot, right? And when the sun goes out or when the earth gets a little closer to the sun and we all burn up, nothing's going to matter. 
Nothing's going to matter. But have you, have you noticed that we are one of the most morally outraged cultures of our time? We act as if a lot of stuff matters. You walk through Seattle and we've got these placards in our yards that say, this house, we believe that love wins. Black lives matter. And you know, all we believe in science and then it lists a bunch of things that science cannot prove, <laughs> which is funny. But we, we, are, we believe, we clearly believe in Seattle in a clear right and wrong, right? But we do not believe in God. And therefore, none of that really actually matters. So there's no difference. If you're the owner of your life, the, the, here's, here's the trade-off. If we retain ownership of our lives, if we're the owners of our lives, that means life, on, the trade is life is meaningless. Life only has, life only has meaning if there's an owner and we're tenants. There's no, that's an equation that is solid. There's no way around it. Life only has meaning. Even existentialists will, will, will tell you that. You can make meaning subjectively, but when you die, it doesn't matter. Objective reality, death is happening, and it's not going to matter. If you're the owner of your life, then all, life is meaningless, and that's actually what Nietzsche said. He says, quote, you're the Superman, he said. You can do whatever you want, but none of it matters. I think he famously said, your life is equal to a rock. It's the same thing as a rock being thrown into a pond. This is the same thing as your life. Suicide, in the end, is just as valuable as, as choosing to live. There's no difference. Nothing matters. Yeah, Kristen. It wouldn't matter. If there's no God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Now, mo most people uh, will not think this through intellectually this far because they don't want to. It's not because they're not smart enough, it's because they don't want to. They will not admit that to claim ownership is to claim meaninglessness. The moment we take it to ourselves, that's the mo moment we, we, we refuse meaning. See, if you're the owner, then you, there's really only two options here. Either there is no God and we live in a meaningless existence, or there is a God and we live life where God controls everything and we owe him everything. Those are the two <laughs> Those are our two roads before us. No life, or no God, no meaning. If there is a God, we owe him everything. We're tenants. We bow before him. That, it's really that simple. So we're caught. We don't want to look at that, and we hate that idea. We hate the idea of a God, and we'll not let him be in control. And that's where we're heading towards with Tenebrae. And that's, where, that's the context of Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. He knows at the end of this week, the, owner, the tenants are going to make their decision. This, is not, this parable doesn't only describe the current situation, it's prophetic. He's saying, at the end of this week, you're going to kill me. And by the end of him saying the parable, they want to kill him. He doesn't get it out of his mouth. And they're, trying to, they're like, okay, how do we, how do, we do this? So the first relationship tells us that we know that we're under obligation to the owner and we hate that. Right? And it's a little more diabolical for us as Christians because as Christians, we still do this. We take our lives back all the time. But, uh, but because we're Christian, we, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's like a psychological get-out-of-jail-free card. You know? We say, praise God, hallelujah, yes, and yeah, but you can't tell me what to do with the... Right? 
comes out in our on someone saying you can't tell me that you can't tell me that someone's it's all right there there's a sense in us where we're like i am in control we need to be in control okay so the first the second relationship has to do with the messengers notice that as the owner sends messengers they beat them up what does this tell us well don't forget that the immediate thrust of this parable is to remind the religious leaders that God has sent prophets to them over the years. God has been, it's been ramping up and God has been sending messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, and they've continually beat them up and, um, and killed them. He sent prophets over the years. I mean, just read the book of Jeremiah sometime, the, the weeping prophet, because his, he had such a hard go of it. He was telling them a message that was not popular. What was, do you remember what he was telling them? He's saying, uh, yeah, Babylon's outside of our doors. It's useless to fight. Give up and it'll go well with you. That'd be like if Russia was out uh, uh, surrounding America and I stood up as a prophet and said, don't fight. It's actually God's will that we go into Russia. Would I be the most popular man on the, on the planet? No, I would not. The king of Judah locked him up, threw him in a well, beat him, tried to shut him up in so many other ways. It was an information war. Other prophets came up and said, we're going to break the broke, you know, they broke a, a yoke. And thus says the Lord, we're going to break the yoke of the oppression of Babylon off of us and everything's going to be just fine. I mean, it's very crazy. Not, not the most popular position and that's what's going on here. But let's draw the broader perspective out and let's look, again, let's look at us. This parable also reminds us and teaches that God in his mercy never gives, uh, gives us just one chance. Isn't that the message of all the prophets of the Old Testament? Someone say yes. Yes, it absolutely is. Think of, you know, Israel, they come out of Egypt almost immediately in fact, most scholars will say the meeting between Yahweh and Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai was like a wedding ceremony. And on the wedding night, Yahweh finds his bride worshiping a golden idol. That's the idea. Ladies, imagine. You're, you're, you get married. You've been waiting for Mr. Right this whole time. And you, I'm going to slip out and go get some water. You want anything? No, I'm good. And you come back and you find him with someone else. That's a dim hint of what Yahweh experienced. And you remember, what did he say? He said, stay away from these people, Moses, because I'm going to fry them. And I'm going to start a new nation with you. And we, I've heard it taught so many times. God was just testing Moses. There's actually zero implication of that in the text if you're just going to read the text it shows that God is so hurt that he's serious and Moses intercedes right and God comes to remember what God comes to in stages God says okay fine I won't destroy you you can go into the promised land but I'm not coming with you and remember Moses goes back to work he says God no 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 the promised land is not the promised land if you're not in it you've got to come with us and God, in a prophetic way, said, for Moses' sake, because of his faithfulness, I'm going to turn toward Israel again. Moses later said in Deuteronomy 18, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. Do what, you, do, what, do what he says. Someone who is perfect in every way. 
pointing to Jesus. And here Jesus is. He walks into Jerusalem and he's saying, look, you've gone astray so many times. I've always come after you. So many times. I called the shot way beforehand and here I am. I'm the greater than Moses. And because of me, God's going to look favorably on you. Remember what the, the famous passage in, in, in uh, uh, Exodus 34 where God says, I am, when we finally learn who God is. He unpacks the name Yahweh. I'm I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Did you know that is the most repeated phrase about God in the Old Testament? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's repeated throughout the entire time. Who is God? And that's shown in the prophets. Israel goes astray. He sends prophets, come back to me. He sends Babylon to, uh, as a disciplinary tool, to judge them and get sin, the sin out, but he comes back and says, I'm gonna bring you back again. And on and on it goes. And they keep going astray and keep going astray and keep going astray. God never just gives us one chance. He is a God, and it, for people that say the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, it's not true. There is absolute continuity and so much grace throughout the Old Testament. God keeps coming back, even though he's heartbroken God says repeated messengers into our lives to tell us that we are not owners. If you want this to be right, first you've got to come back to how it was originally meant to be. You're not the owner. He sends them into our lives to shatter the illusion that we're independent or that, we actually deeply de- that, that we're actually not deeply dependent and contingent on, on him and on others. How does he do that? Well, what are some ways? What are some ways that God has sent into your life possibly? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Anybody gone through a circumstance where you just sensed that this was God saying, warning, warning, redirect, right? Weird story. <laughs> Nicole and I, we just moved here, and we, were, we just moved from California, and we were staying with some friends. We were trying to get a place of our own. I was working at Noah's Bagels in Kirkland as the baker, and we found this place on the Kirkland waterfront overlooking the water that was really expensive, but we really wanted it. And we were young and really stupid, and we were going for it. And we'd filled out the application, and we were like, okay, we'll make this happen somehow and all of these things. Well, one night, before, right before we were about to go sign this contract, we're all playing Monopoly with us and our friends. And I lost really badly. Like where the point where like, you know, if you ever lost the game and secretly you're just, you're just reeling inside, you're just like, I'm a loser. I can't believe I was that, you know. That was going on. So I went down and I took a shower. They're still playing. And I felt, it's beyond um, explanation, it's just true. I felt God saying, yeah, you were dumb. And you're about to do something dumb tomorrow by signing that contract. <laughs> you're going to lose in the I don't think we should sign that contract. And she was like, oh good, I don't think we should either. (laughs) You know, it was a lot for us to do. And I think there's no, looking back, there's no way we could have afforded that place. No way we could have done it. Any circumstance, you know, circumstances where God speaks to you, anything else? Yeah. Okay, who else? I'm waiting for someone to say my wife. What's that? Other people, yes, yes. My wife, oh my gosh. The voice of God in my life so much of the time comes through my, 
comes through my wife. She is so wise and so smart. And the better life has been for me has been the times that I've learned to swallow my pride and listen to and consider what she's saying. You would have missed out on the Taylor's place. I would have missed out on the Taylor's place. Yeah, right. Circumstances, yeah, that brought us here. Absolutely. I'm sure we can, you know, um, providential, uh, some scholars call, call them providential messengers. These are tragedies and loss that get our attention. Like Lewis said, God screams at us in our pain, right? Through suffering and pain. Anybody, I, so, well, I will say almost everybody, and maybe everybody, I just can't think of it, but almost everybody that's come to me was on the other side of some kind of tragedy and pain. They all have something similar to say, and it's usually something like, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I don't regret it going through it at the same time because it, I learned what I learned from it. I'm better from it, right? We've all heard those things. Yeah, God takes us through those things. The message is that you're not in control of your life. The reality is that life will never let you control it. <laughs> I mean, has the last two years taught us that with COVID and everything else? Life will not let us be in control. Despite what the self-help books will tell you, we're in very little control of much of anything at all. You can set your goals, you can set your agendas and decide on your values, but, but just wait. <laughs> just wait. And the market will crash. Or you'll get some sickness or whatever might happen a car will t-bone you and there is your life before and your life after everything is so fragile so if life won't let you act act like the owner then far and away the most the, the most obvious explanation is that you're not we're not the owners we're not in charge we're not in control we're just tenants How are, you treating, how are you treating the messengers in your life? Are you beating them up? Are you, trying to get, are you ignoring them? Trying to get rid of them? Using your own fake news to come against them maybe? Lastly, the tenant's relationship to the son. And here we get to the heart of it. If you read the text really carefully, you'll see that every messenger that comes, progression of intensity, that more, the more messengers that come, they get more and more hostile. And then suddenly, all of that growing enmity erupts when the sun shows up and they, they kill him. Right? They killed other people before, but they're killing the air. There's a degree in this story where you're supposed to, you're supposed to gasp when it comes to the sun to go, oh, not him. That's the, that's the point of a parable. The parable is supposed to draw you in with the story and tug on your humanity. And the sun shows up and we say, no, not him, no. Are they that brazen? These guys have lost their minds. Like that's what you're trying to, that's, that's the whole point. And the Bible teaches us that underneath all of our inhumanity to each other and underneath all of our complaints and self-pity is an anger that we're not in charge and that we know, we, we, we know what's best for us and we know that when someone won't let us be in charge, we hate it. And we'll do, any, it's so, we'll do anything to try to, to try to get rid of them. It's natural for all human hearts to hate God. And the evidence is that the, the one time in human history 
where God made himself physically vulnerable, what did we do to him? We killed him. We killed him. He was almost immediately jumped upon, kicked, beaten, tortured, and killed. Almost immediately. Jesus said, they hated me without cause. Remember that? He's quoting the great messianic Psalm, uh, Psalm 69. Paul picks this theme up in Romans 8 when he says that the natural mind is enmity towards God. And every once in a while in human history, we see this level of human evil. You know, we, we think of the Holocaust or, or when someone uses chemical weapons or when we learn about what someone has done to a child and we just think, oh my gosh, where did this all come from? The Bible would say it's all towards, it all stems from us thinking we're the owners. It, it, it warps and perverts us to where we'll do anything. There's no telling. The Bible would say you surprise, you'll be surprised what you'd do to suppress the truth. You'd surprise yourself what, what you'd do to stay in charge. Notice that Paul didn't say the natural mind has enmity towards God, by the way. Very important, because there's a way in the Greek that he would have said that, if that's what he meant. That would be a weaker statement, but he doesn't say it like that. He says the natural mind is enmity toward God. Sin is not just a volitional situation where we break a rule, but sin is an entire attitude of resentment toward the crown that claims authority over our lives. Towards God, that the only way he could deal with it was to let us pour it out into his son. Here's what's interesting. What, what's the... What's the, at the end of the parable, Jesus asks a logical question. What's the owner going to do? In one version of this, the Pharisees answer in response. Because it's so obviously logical what somebody would do. You know? He'd go, he'd go storm, that, storm that vineyard and kill those tenants. Right? And yet, that's not how God's going to let the story pan out. Instead, God is going to divinely sanction the death of his son. Do you see the mercy in this? He, the parable pulls on your logic, your sense of good justice. What's the owner going to do? Anybody with a sense of justice will say, well, he's going to go get what his. And he's going to bring retribution on those so-and-sos for killing his son. Many a good Hollywood movie is made where there's, there's revenge at the end after the death of a son and no one seems to mind. And here Jesus is saying, look, this parable is eerily similar, but except for one difference... My father loves the evil, the evil people so much. He loves the tenants so much that he's going to punish his son instead of them. And Jesus is going to willingly allow that to happen. A lot of people have a problem with that doctrine because they think it's like divine child abuse. That Jesus was like, no, and God was like, I gotta do it, son. 
you know, that type of a thing. But they were in complete and utter unison. Not what I will, but what you, your will be done. I'm willing, Jesus would say. Redemption was in complete Trinitarian unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will take the penalty for these rotten, evil people that hate me. What does that do? I'm, here's what, I'm, here's what I, I'm looking out over our church and I look in a mirror. I look at you and, and I look at you through this passage. And here's what I've got to see. And I look at a mirror at myself through this passage. Here's what I've got to see. Someone, people who hate God. Romans chapter three, no one loves God, not even one, Paul would say. Our story is we deserve death and, and, and yet... The prince of heaven died instead of me. Now what does that do to someone like me? What does that do? I'm, here's what, I'm, what I'd like to pawn off on you. I'll just get to it. I think that's the only, I think that kind of love is the only power in the universe that can change evil hearts like ours. What did Jesus say um, in Romans 5? Where's my phone? I want to quote this one directly because, um, you know, some scriptures are okay to butcher. I'm just kidding. But not this one. No, none of them are. You know what I mean. Okay. Let me just um, get there. You know this, this, it's a famous one. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope for the, for the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly is you and me. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking in the mirror, okay? For, the, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, will, one will, would dare to die. This is, here it is, you guys, the only power in the universe that can change evil people like us. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still evil tenants thinking we were owners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, verse 8. Let me give you another one. Just as good. 1 John. Let's hear from another voice. 1 John 4, 10, I think. In this is love. You ready? In this is love, not that we have loved God, on the contrary, we've hated him, but that he loved us. How did he love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's the connection between what we believe and how we live. In other words, Figure it out. This has ramifications for your life. If God loved us like that, people who hated him, 
who tried to suppress the truth naked and laughed at him, shamed him, cast him out of society. And we hated him and jeered at him. If that's how he loved us and we've been changed by that, how can we not love others, not just the people that love us back, but a city that hates us? Neighbors who won't want anything to do with us. How can we not? See? No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The only, power that, the, only, the only power in the universe that can change our hearts is that kind of love. To lay down our lives. And that's what unites us. That's why we use the term in Christianity, we've been saved, right? That's the idea. We've been saved. But it's not like we're like, uh, you know, the damsel in distress, this innocent person that's been, we've been saved from our own evil. That's the idea. And that's not, that cannot just remain as doctrine in our minds. That's got to be an experience in our hearts. And to that degree, we'll, we'll, we will begin to love others. We can't help it. We can't help it when we really understand that. Amen? Amen.